Hi, I'm Ross Greenwood, and these are the Money Minutes. Great to have your company for another episode of the Money Minutes. This one, a little bit different than the normal one. Uh, Over the past few days, as you're aware, Australia and the world indeed lost quite an extraordinary man in James Wolfensohn, who scaled the heights to become the president of the World Bank between 1995 and 2005. A proud Australian during all of that time. One of the things he's remembered for, for example, is an enormous effort to try and forgive many emerging nations their debt. And it was said that he brought many people out of poverty as a result of his actions. Now, through that period, Wolfenson's goal was to focus on alleviating poverty, creating sustainable development and combating corruption and achieving social justice. In a statement, the former Prime Minister, Paul Keating, said that he was Australia's unofficial ambassador at the court of the American Congress and the White House, forever ready to promote Australia's interest when asked. Few Australians have had such an impact and presence in the United States, said Keating. Now, while he might be better known for his service on the global stage, he was also an officer in the Royal Australian Air Force and also represented Australia in fencing. He was also an accomplished cellist, helping to rebuild Carnegie Hall in London. In 2010, so 10 years ago, he wrote his memoirs, A Global Life, My Journey Among Rich and Poor, From Sydney to Wall Street to the World Bank. At that time, I had the pleasure of speaking with James Wolfenson about his rise to become president of the World Bank and some of the geopolitical events that are still playing out today, and especially in China. Let's just recap how that conversation with James Wolfenson went. James Wolfenson, many thanks for joining us here on the program. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. Um, The book itself tells your journey as much as anything else. Um, I guess even as you sit back and reflect as you're writing this book and you look back at that kid going through Sydney University, you quite clearly did not necessarily have an underprivileged life, but you certainly had doors open to you at every stage as you went through your career. Well, I think uh, that was true, but I think those opportunities are there for any young Australian who is anxious to make a career. And when I was doing it, I I just knocked at the doors and people were very kind and let me in. <laughs> the result was that I was able to build a career. If you if you thought about the one thing that you had as a talent as you moved through that career, what was it? I think it was never wanting to give up. Uh, I started my university career in a very bad way. I failed lots of subjects. And then I turned around and decided that maybe I'd better try and improve and so I did and uh, the remarkable thing about Australia I think and certainly from my experience was that everybody was prepared to give you a fair go and to try and help you and when I went overseas I found that uh, the experience in Australia was a tremendous help to me and uh, I must say this is a great place to grow up. Tell me this though, you do talk about in the book the real catalyst that made you effectively get the kick in the backside to, to actually suddenly start to concentrate and start to really get your life into order. What do you think that was? Well, it was failing three out of four subjects in my first year and then facing either going to work in a timber yard, which I did for a couple of weeks, or turning around and trying to build a proper life. And I went away and I thought, what do I prefer to do, to go into a timber yard or to try and uh, restore things? And so I made the decision that I better turn around. And I had a professor, Julius Stone, who took uh, some pity on me and uh, 
and really helped me get my uh, study habits together. And because of Julius, I, I think I turned things around. If we move further through into your life, of course, the move from Schroeder's, where you'd obviously moved through the ranks in London, yes. to go to Salomon Brothers was an interesting adventure in itself because it did require you to put a lot of your capital into Salomon Brothers, which, if you like, Michael Lewis in Liar's Poker right. did describe very accurately the very hard and fast life of the bond traders inside Salomon right. Brothers. That's right. Uh, it was a real dog-eat-dog world, but you were very much at the forefront of that dog-eat-dog world. It wasn't quite the refined life that you'd necessarily had to that point. Well, it couldn't have been more different than the life in London uh, because you'd get in at 7.30 in the morning and you'd go into a room where it was already filled with cigar smoke and you had people throwing uh, eggs and food at you and and the huge fights would go on between the partners about what they should do until the bell rang and we started and then it became a fantastic team, a money-making machine really in those days and uh, and it couldn't have been more different than the elite life I'd lived in London, but it was a great transition for me, and I did it for five years and then decided that I'd uh, start my own firm. That's right. You did that, but tell me about the time that you got knocked back the first time when you applied to get the job at the World Bank. Well, that was, I think, very sensible on the part of President Reagan because he got uh, Tom Clawson, who was then chairman of Bank of America and who had experience way beyond mine, and it was the luckiest thing that ever happened to me because I then got 14 years' experience running my own firm and um, and learning to administer and traveling around the world in a way that I hadn't before. And I was very glad that I was knocked back in retrospect because when I took it over at the age of 62, it was a, it was a fantastic experience. But even at the age of 62, when you took over the job, you were not the favourite. You were seen to be the dark horse. Yes. It was Larry Summers who was being called back into harness by, by President uh, Obama to try and help out, sort out the global financial crisis. He was seen to have the inside running at that time. Well, he did because he was then the Deputy Secretary of the Treasury and he was the recommendation of the Secretary, Bob Rubin. But for some reason or other, President Clinton decided that I would... Uh, I would be his choice, and uh, it was it created a little bit of difficulty for the first few months working with the Treasury, as you might imagine. But we soon uh, got over that, and I'm very happy to say that Larry Summers went on to become President of Harvard and Secretary of the Treasury, so he didn't suffer. He didn't suffer at all. No, that's true. When you walked into the World Bank for the first time, also the reaction towards you, it would be, say, was underwhelming in some ways. And, and just, just describe the World Bank, because 9,000 people is the headquarters where you walked into. That's right, and, and the World World Bank really deals with the countries that are the poorest countries in the world, 140, 150 of them. And it is owned, the World Bank is owned by uh, 180 countries in the world. It is a government-financed uh, body, uh, but runs relatively independently. It has the finance ministers come twice a year to meet uh, with the board of the bank. But basically, it's an independent institution, the purpose of which is to alleviate poverty, to fight corruption, to bring about development in developing countries, all the good things, improve the role of women, uh, deal with health, and deal with infrastructure. So it's, a, it's an extraordinary job and a great privilege to be there. Which is always summed up in its motto, of course, because that motto pretty much tells the story of why it's there. Well, it is there to try and help the world. That's it. But the issue is, of course, that many people, the non-government organisations, don't see it that way. The likes of, say, Oxfam and others such as that still saw it as being representative of actually helping to starve the world. And this is something that you had to confront very early in your presidency. I did indeed. And uh, 
and I reached out to the civil society groups and <clears throat> the first thing which really allowed us to come closer together was to try and get uh, relief from the tremendous burden of debt that was on the developing countries. And so we found common cause in trying to feel, fix debt relief and that led to us working together very significantly and now in the World Bank projects probably 60 to 70 percent of them have some uh, non-government organization somewhere involved. The thing I, I, I should ask you while we're here is we see the emergence of China. Obviously, it's yeah. come from a, a relatively impoverished background and a controlled background to one which is thriving now. Alongside it is India with, a, with, a, with a, an equally significant population and one which probably doesn't have the same sort of structured infrastructure that China has, but one which has got a much younger population. Which one of those two do you think will actually grow fastest long term? Well, longer term, uh, by 2050, India will be the larger country. But uh, there's a lot of uh, questions about that. Certainly at the moment, China is far and away the leading uh, developing country. It's now the number two economic power in the world, uh, second only to the United States. So uh, we've seen tremendous advances in China and in India, and I think we will continue to do so. And the other thing as well, Africa, of course, is the, 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 the continent that everybody looks at and asks whether there is hope for Africa. There's been every type of effort made to try and bring some of these countries through to, to, to create stability in these countries, to create a, a, a prosperous economy in these countries. Is there genuinely any hope for many of the countries of Africa? Well, I think there's hope for some of them. But there are 53 countries in, uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, or in Africa generally. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, you can probably name 15 or 20 of them that you think will do pretty well. But unfortunately, there are too many countries there that are very badly run, subject to a lot of corruption, and really lacking in the talent that's necessary to run a country. And finally, I guess the United States itself, $14 trillion worth of debt. Yes. At some stage in the future, might it be that the World Bank might be needed by the most prosperous country in the world? <laughs> I don't think it would be needed by, by that because uh, the standard of living is a little high, but I don't doubt that the United States has to confront very serious problems of debt, and we'll see tomorrow just what the American public thinks of what's going on when the election comes. And is the real answer in the United States to let the banks go through in the future, because as a, as a banker yourself, you'd be very close to this, or is it really a case where the, the banks have got to be propped up for the good of the nation? Well, I think they had to be propped up this time, but I don't think that it'll happen ever again. James Wolfenson, as I say, the former president of the World Bank. He was a Middle East envoy uh, for, for the administration in the United States uh, for President Clinton. And as I say, his life has been one of the most astonishing of any Australian that's ever lived. And can I say, James Wolfenson, it's been an absolute pleasure. Well, you're very, very kind to have me, and thanks a lot. Thanks for taking the time to listen. You can give us your feedback via social media, Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn, or via your podcast app on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Amazon. This has been a Talent Corp production. I'm Ross Greenwood, and these are the Money Minutes.